0: Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast.
1: Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, where we talk to creative people and find out where all that creativity comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the table from me is our amazing co-host, Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? It's going fine. I'm staying warm. staying warm, and right now, that's uh, been a trick in our area, uh, but it's actually been, you know, reasonable. Um, I'm not going to gripe too much because it's it just did get cold. Oh, I can gripe at any time. <laughs> All right, then. Hey, tonight's guest is an award-winning writer and actor. He has worked on... Uh, Things like Celebrity Deathmatch, The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, Comedy Bang Bang, and much, much more. True Fiction welcomes John T. Reynolds to the show. How's it going tonight, John? It's going great, Patrick and Norbert. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, most people say no, so we really appreciate you saying yes. That was awesome.
0: (laughs) I'm a podcast whore,
1: so you (laughs) lucked out with me. (laughs) Hey, uh, you've done a lot of writing, a lot of cool writing, a lot of these shows these were like really cool shows. Celebrity Deathmatch was one of the coolest shows. I remember when that came out. It was amazing. How'd you get started yeah. doing all this?
0: Wow. Uh, well, um, well, Celebrity Deathmatch was actually my first professional writing job. Um I, I I came onto that show in the last two seasons of its of its of its original existence. I think they brought it back uh like ten or so years ago. And they've been trying to bring it back ever since. I mean, it's such an amazing concept. You know, You, it's one of those things like The Simpsons, I feel like it could run forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the way I got that job, well, I started at the UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater.
1: Oh, that's um, awesome.
0: In New York. And that's really when, although I had this the celebrity death mass match job before that, just before that. But when I got started at UCB, that's really when stuff took off for me. And that was probably around 2000, 2000, 2001, right around 9-11 when people were like, what am I doing with my life? I'll do I'll do long form improv. <laughs> but Celebrity Deathmatch was I had found I had a writing partner at the time named Mike Samanak, who's still in the business as well and we're still buddies. And he and I were writing a lot of sketch comedy together. And um, we wrote some specs and we got an agent and and got a meeting and that's how we got it. I mean, it was like, I think we found out that they were looking on the internet back, you know, 20 some odd years ago. I had a friend who got a job writing for Ellen on her talk show through Craigslist. Wow because they, they were, they were trying all sorts of different things, I guess, when the internet was, um, you know, starting to, the internet had been around, I guess, since the early nineties, but it wasn't until things like Google and stuff started happening that it, it had more of a purpose and people could organize it for things like trying to get people writing jobs, I guess, (laughs) and other stuff. So, yeah, so that's, that's how that happened. And then once I, I happened to be at UCB when it was really starting to take off and, uh, I came up with a lot of people who more people who are listening to this now would know than they know me. <laughs> and uh, as a result, I've gotten to uh, to work with them continuously on, on stuff with some of them, you know. So th- that's basically how I got my start, long-form improv. I tell people, because I'll, I'll teach classes from time to time. Uh, I love to teach, and uh, I started teaching at UCB as well. Uh, Now I there's no UCB in New York anymore, unfortunately, because of uh, the pandemic. But uh, I still teach occasionally through an outfit here called Laughing Buddha, which is a great stand-up comedy school in New York. I teach late night writing a, a late night writing course on Zoom because this is how we write now. We write on Zoom. Writing rooms are are all on Zoom. I think some are some they're going in, but most of the stuff I've been working on has all been through Zoom. So. It's like also perfect for teaching, you know, and uh, I tell all of the students to do UCB, but there's only one left in uh, <laughs> in Los Angeles. I don't know. That might turn around again and they might get a theater again in New York. We'll see.
2: I'm very curious about what you was talking about in terms of writing with a partner and writing rooms, because I, I think of, you know, writers a lot of time as they're sitting at their typewriter or they're with their legal pad or, or at their computer in a solitary you know, or at the coffee shop drinking their coffee, and I yeah. and and then you was talking uh, talking about the writers room, and I don't know if comedy le- lends itself more to uh, interactive, uh, you know, working with somebody else, or it doesn't, or just if you could talk a little bit about that because I find that very interesting, that like the process of writing comedy with somebody else or writing by yourself.
0: Oh, sure. Well, becoming from long form improv is the best way to deal with a right, you know, to be prepared for a writer's room because improvisation, is short form as well. Not to not to shit on. Can I curse on? Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, you did. Uh, no. no, absolutely did, no problem. Yeah.
0: Too late. <laughs> well, I just want to make sure I, I'm not. I don't have you guys doing a lot of beeps after. work The short form too. It's like it, it's very. You have to you know, you have to be able to play off of people. Right. So, and that's a lot like uh, what a writer's room is like the best word of advice I've ever gotten about writer's rooms. If you've never been in one is a rule that I broke a lot, even though, even though I knew it and it's a terrible rule to break. And it's when you're in the writer's room and you're pitching jokes or just listening to people, try not to say I would take that out without having something to replace it with. So unless the, unless the rules of that particular writer's room meeting are, we are just looking for cuts. Even then I would say cut it with a good explanation because everybody treats their own writing as gold, you know? And uh, I just, I broke that so many times in the beginning, even though I knew it because it's such a, it's such an easy instinct, right? To go like, that's not good. That's not working. That's how most of us got into this business. As we looked at our television shows and our movies that we were watching and we were like, you eventually would hit one or many where you'd go, I could write better than that. It's just a natural instinct, right? But when you get in the room and you go, I'd lose that. And the person who wrote it was the head writer. (laughs) (laughs) You better have a good replacement for that or a good reason why it's not working.
1: The you know? lines like that can be uh, what they call career limiting experiences. I think. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. That reminds me of another line a, a writer told me once, where he left a job and he said, "We had creative differences. I'm I'm creative, and they wanted something different." <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: but writers' rooms are um, they're interesting because I, I, like I said, it came from improv, but when I didn't really deal with the nuts and bolts of a writer's room until I was on the late, late show with Craig Ferguson. And I was on that show for six years. And it's when it, when we, when I started on the show, he had only been on the air for about a year and a half and we had three writer's rooms a day and it was a daily show. And after my first year there that got reduced to two. And then eventually after two or three years, it was down to one we were doing more of what you were saying before Norbert, Norbert, we would come in and we would write on our own and then get together and throw everything together. But in the beginning, Craig would be part of the writer's room meeting right at the beginning of the day at nine o'clock. And you would just get a feel for what he wanted to talk about. And then it was a lot of over-talking and a lot of whoever's the loudest got stuff in and I can be loud, but the people that were in there were way louder (laughs) than I was. And that, that was intimidating and strange and definitely not the best, not the best material came out of that. And they started to feel that out. Um, and then it became more about, more about coming in with a, with an idea of what we were going to work on and have more, uh, pointed pitches in that regard. And that, that tended to, uh, that tended to yield better work. But I got to see the whole arc over six years of how that show wanted to be at wanted to be a show. And then like one of the last big writers rooms in person, uh, not zoom. Cause I think zoom is a different animal that I was in before the pandemic was a show called the president show on comedy central. That show was being run by daily show writers and Colbert rapport writers. And they had, those guys had gone through their own system of how to do stuff. So that was a lot of get to your desk and wait for an email to come in saying we need a lot of jokes on just this and then write all that down you know write as much as you could within that time period until the next assignment came in and then they would only call writers room meetings if they were stuck or if they needed, like, that show had a theme. Every episode had a theme. So we always had a writer's room meeting about that, at least one or two a week. And that was a weekly show. So there's a, definitely more breathing room with a weekly sh- weekly topical show than a daily topical show. But, yeah, th- it was interesting, at la- just thinking about it now, that Late late Show, them realizing that the three writer's rooms the day were probably <laughs> muddying things, you know, after a bit.
2: When you say wow. they, who who do you think they is in this case? Is it they I mean, is
0: yeah? They is usually the head the head writer, the host, and an EP, an executive producer or two would probably be the ones who decide whether this is whether whether the system is working or not.
2: One of the things I, I one of the most valuable things I I took was a creative class in college, and you know they talked about like the dynamics of brainstorming and, you know, how, how you optimally go about it in, in terms of, of generating good ideas without, you know, killing the culture with when, when you get people together to, to uh, talk, because what happens sometimes is, you know, the, the personality with the most um, you know, the most dominant personality takes over and that doesn't necessarily lead to the best product. And it right. sounds like what, that's what you're talking about, that you had some of that where you would have somebody who was the loudest or the most forceful. That doesn't mean they are the, the funniest. And I, I yeah. don't know how 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 in, you know, in comedy it just is I assume it's just like any other creative field or engineering field or any of that sort of stuff that uh, you still have the same personal dynamics of politics and, uh, you know, personalities and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, politics figures into it way more than I thought it would, which is disheartening, but also heartening if you're good at that. And, and I would be good sometimes and not good other times. Also, I would often be the loud guy and get back to the room after I said something loud, not just on Ferguson, but many shows, even now, stuff that I'm working on. And then I look at it and I go, this isn't funny or it doesn't make sense. But, the, but now the host loves it because... It got a big laugh in the room. And so I've screwed myself, but, but not realizing it until, you know, the dust has settled. And uh, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, to really avoid that. And, but like I said, on Late Late Show, in the, in the beginning when I started, that was probably where I saw that the most because I've, I haven't been in a show situation that had that many writers room. I think that that show was the last Daily Show I did. Because after six years, I just, I, my advice also is to never be on one of those shows for more than two years. <laughs> <laughs> As I always say, the best four years of my career were the six years I spent on uh, Late Late Show. Because <laughs> I overstayed my welcome and uh, for myself, you know. And I, you know, your, your, your Joe Biden is an idiot jokes become, your Sarah Palin is an idiot joke becomes your Joe Biden is an idiot joke. You know, all these things sort of hit um, the same notes after a while. And uh, I'm not often in that kind of situation where I'm, I'm in a room full of people yammering like AM radio to find something, you know, it's more measured these days. And also the Zoom writing experience forces that, which there's definite benefits to it. Like, you know, you could spend a lot of time in a writer's room talking. It's a joke, but it's true talking about what you're gonna order for lunch. And then that becomes, you know, that can turn into material often, but a lot of times it doesn't, and it's just a waste. And on Zoom, you're not gonna talk about that because you're not in the same room. So you really end up focusing on what's going on with the thing that you're dealing with on the show. It's way more focused. And I know a lot of writers don't necessarily love that because they love the the stuff that comes out of random interactions. I tend the other way. I like it to be like, what are we working on? Like I president show for me was the best run show. It was, I loved sitting at my desk, getting assignments, blathering on the page and, and being able to edit myself as I go. And then coming in for the occasional writer's room meeting to me, that's the best, but everyone's different. Larry David, apparently on Seinfeld didn't even have a writer's room. Really? Yeah. There's a great book by Fred Stoller. Who's a stand up comic who wrote for one year on stuff? Uh, it's called, I think it's called my Seinfeld year. It's it's a Kindle single when those things were when Kindle was first starting. And it's a great, if you're into comedy writing, it's a great, great purchase. It's like two bucks, I think. And uh, he talks about having to wait for Larry David to come out of his office on his way to the bathroom to pitch him episode ideas, because he hated the writer's room for everything that we were talking about. The loudest person gets in everybody's head. And you can't shake those ideas. And he just, he didn't want any of that noise. So it was almost like, why does he even have a staff? But he did need the staff because it's very hard to write, especially though. Seinfeld, I think was 24 episodes a season. I don't even think the networks do that anymore.
1: That's
2: nuts. Yeah. Going back to Craig Ferguson for a little bit, what is the, what is the advantages and disadvantages? I, I would imagine that you've got somebody like Craig Ferguson, who seems to be a pretty, uh, over the, you know, over the top person out, at least on air. Um, when you're writing for somebody like that, does it give you some sort of comfort that, you know, he seems pretty witty on the fly or does it, what, what just what some of the, the pluses and minuses of working with somebody like that?
0: That's a great question. He's, um, yeah, he was very, very good at ad-libbing, and I was fortunate, too, after about a year, two years there, I started, I always wrote sketches. On that show, the writers wrote everything, The not the questions to the guests, that was a segment producer department, but we wrote the sketches and we wrote the monologue jokes. His monologue was different if people who don't know the show, he would start with topical jokes, and then usually one of them would lead into a personal story or just a Kind of like an opinion piece. So it, it would have a more personal feel. But those were all written. All, all those jokes were written by the staff. And he wrote them too. I mean, he's a very funny guy. But he he's, such a, he's a good actor too. So a lot of people didn't even believe that stuff was written. Because it really did look like he was making it up off the top of his head. But on other late night shows, like on Fallon's Tonight Show, they have the monologue writers. And then they have the sketch writers. And they're two different departments. And they they crossbreed. They throw stuff to each other but they really have the, the main hat is one team or the other. I was lucky because I got to do both. I came on that show for, for my sketch writing because that's what I mostly trained with uh, UCB for. But b- by the time I left, I was, a, I think, a better joke writer because I had to do it. We had to write at least 30 to 40 jokes a day, you know. So that's great on-the-job learning. So for him, the trap was because he's a good ad-libber, in the beginning, I was thinking, well, he'll figure this out. And I don't have to really think about the joke, but they don't want that, <laughs> you know? The, the other trap, too, was like he, he was very self-conscious about hitting the country too hard because in the beginning, he wasn't a citizen. And he was self-conscious about that, about being a foreigner, talking about his adopted country, being mean about his adopted country. And then the more famous he got through the show the less he wanted to attack celebrities. So that continued to narrow the window of what we could do, which was a good challenge, but it could get it could get very frustrating at times. He liked certain areas more than others. So the writers would tend towards the areas where we knew he would want to pick from, but then we would get directives from the head writer. There were two head writers, co-head writers on the on the show for the bulk of my time there. And they would tell us that you, you got to stop that you got to go more in this area or we're seeing too much of this joke so we got to stop that like one of the last things i did before we left was it wasn't enough to just come up with jokes if you could come up with some twist so the template of when mitt romney was running against obama the big gettable thing about him was how rich he was so you if you did a joke where he was like you heard like he just got 35 million dollars 35 million dollars for his campaign and the, the joke is he found it in the change in his couch cushions because <laughs> he's so rich, right? I had added in the act out, like, when when he speaks as Mitt Romney, he does it in urban uh, black woman. And I just put that in for no reason. And he loved that. So he would he would do the, the rich joke and talk like Mitt Romney, but he'd say it like, I found it in my couch cushions, bitch! <laughs> Whatever. like More like Dave Chappelle. I think I'm remembering it wrong. And then he would say, you didn't know that, but Mitt Romney uh, Mitt Romney talks like that. And it was at that time in history where no, no one really knew much about Mitt Romney except he was rich and Mormon. We couldn't hit the Mormon stuff too much because we didn't want to get in trouble with religious stuff. So we, the, really, we could only hit he was rich. And then this added thing that I did where he no one knows what he sounds like, really. So why not make him sound like Dave Chappelle? <laughs> and uh, he would get two, he'd get two laughs off of that. And then what would happen? And I remember like, after like doing this for three weeks, the head writers were like, can everyone please stop pitching Mitt Romney sounds like Dave Chappelle? <laughs> uh, because, because they, everyone, all the writers saw Craig loves it. So they all were writing it. And then I would get pissed. Cause I was like, I'm the one who came up with it. That's mine. Stay the fuck off my, you know, you get territorial about it too. It's like, that's what I mean about six years being too long. <laughs> you, you realize,
1: what am I fighting about? <laughs> when you started, you said it was around 2000. I remember another presidential show that was going on at the time, which was That's My Bush. So, of yes. what 9 11 happened, that ended, that little funny thing. But now I that see that was the South Park guys, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. You know I was thinking we we've went back uh, my wife and I have been went we went back and we started watching all the old Fear Factor, oh wow, and I was just thinking, and just to be honest, there were so many things that happened on Fear Factor that I go, wow, they would never get by with that way they talk to women on that show, the way they make the mm-hmm. women dress the that things has it has it been hard for you now as a comedian as you know, a comedy writer to the, are there a are there like a lot of no go zones aren't there or are there? You still feel you have freedom to say what you want? Um, I mean, most
0: of what I'm working on now is kids animated shows right now. Not a lot um, of swearing on those. Yeah, so there's not, I'm not hitting that kind of stuff. <laughs> the last topical thing I did was 2020 in February. I was the head writer of the Spirit Awards when with, with Aubrey Plaza hosting and uh, who I know from UCB. And um, I don't remember, yeah, I don't don't remember hitting anything or hitting any walls with anything being taboo. I mean, like the thing, there was a famous case uh, that went to trial in the, I think it was the late 90s. A African-American woman was a writer's assistant for Friends. I don't know if you guys know this Mm. story or not, but she didn't get picked up for the next season. And she apparently didn't want to be a writer anyway and had other career interests. But she was so offended by what went on in the writers' room that she sued the show. And it was a big deal because writers were like, well, if we can't say whatever we want in the writers' room, You know, is that going to keep us from walking down paths that we need to go to to find something that is usable? And all this stuff came out about how the writers would make fun of Courtney Cox, how skinny she was and her diet and whose breasts were bigger of all the girls and all this stuff came out that was very embarrassing. But the case was ruled that the writers room should be, um, you know, free to do whatever it wants. Nice, But that was also at a time where the diversity in the writer's room was not as great as it's becoming now. So I know that that has changed a lot of how writers are talking in the writer's room. And that's not to say that I, I never really noticed anybody being racist, overtly racist uh, before. I mean, it, it would come up. But it would come up in the sense of that, like, oh, it's like that joke that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think now if you were going to reference something, I mean, there are extremes. I know there was an African-American writer, a male writer. He wrote an op-ed piece for The Times about quitting a show that he was writing on because he used the N-word when he was telling the room about something that happened in his own lived experience in the past. And then he got called into HR the next day. Wow. And they were like, we heard you use the N-word. And he's like, well, yeah, it was because someone was calling me that in the story that I was telling because it had something to do with whatever we were working on in this, in the script. And he thought it was nonsense to the point that he quit the show. So I think there is, there are elements of that. I haven't really seen, like I said, recently, I haven't seen much of it. I haven't seen any of it. It happens more with, um, the the diversity thing happens more with people like myself and other white male writers. I know being told, they don't want to meet with you because they're looking for a person of color. But I always feel like that kind of stuff is the same as we're going to, you know, back in the day when they would hire the producer's girlfriend to be a writer and an actress, you know, it's like that target constantly changes because most of, there are plenty of smart, creative executives in Hollywood, but there's more dumb, scared ones. And they, they, are so afraid now being seen as racist that they are just are, you know, doing whatever they can to not appear that way. That's the thing that I've noticed that's going on right now, but that's not really affecting the material from what I see.
1: Very good. You know, I, and I did want to know about Ferguson and I, I he's just funny. I mean, this guy's just really funny. And yeah. I, I like to say that's adult humor and there were some adult humor in there, but you're talking to a skeleton. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculously funny. Yeah. What? Is, but what is the difference between what you're doing now with uh you know you you did Peabody and Sherman, uh the yeah. Adventures of Bullwinkle and and Rocky. What's What's different in the writing for that as opposed to uh, Craig?
0: There's no difference. <laughs> <laughs> the only difference is that Craig was topical, but even then, like Craig got a pass that the other late night shows didn't get because he, uh, he could talk, he could veer off of whatever was in the news and just talk about whatever. And he kind of set that template early on. And that kind of defeats the perfect purpose in a way of what a topical show is, but <laughs> Most of the press at the time called that him deconstructing, deconstructing late night. Uh. And he always wanted to treat the show like Pee-wee's Playhouse with, for late night. So I, you know, he, appreci- he loves cartoons. Most comedians, comedy writers, I think, of note, who are, are worth anything, love animation. So the only difference really is it's all the same. It's the same as live action. You still have to have characters that are believable uh, even, even more so, right? Because it's animated and um, being blue will only get you so far. So I, I have always wanted to be my dream job was to be a nationally syndicated newspaper cartoonist and then newspapers died, you know? So there's really no, there's no real career in that anymore, though people still do it. It's not, it's not like it used to be, and that's a shame. So the, the next best thing was to get into comedy in general, and I tried stand-up and stuff, but stand-up is a different beast. You have to have a, a different kind of discipline. I was raised Catholic, so it was easier for me to slot it into something like the UCB that had classes, and you know you could go through like, cheap sheep. And then you get weeded out wh- through talent and luck, whether or not you get to perform on the main stage. But with standup, you're, you're, you're really your own boss. And it's difficult. And I know a lot of stand-ups, and my girlfriend's a, a professional stand-up, and it's hard. Like, and to me the hardest thing is not writing jokes and also not getting like, I can deal with bombing. I, I did enough improv shows where I bombed uh, too many. I could deal with that. It's the, being your own manager, like get up and do it again tomorrow night, go up and do it for those three people the next night. And that, that just, I couldn't, I'd be like, well, the joke got a laugh a couple of times. It's good. I, you know, what else, what else do I need? <laughs> That's why improv was more, more my speed. Did I answer the question? Cause I don't even remember it. What was the question? No, it's uh, a, <laughs>
1: <clears throat> absolutely. You did. Yeah, of course it's, it's the same writing for, uh, writing for kid shows and writing for Craig Ferguson is the same thing. And I think, Man, we love the Craig Ferguson show. It's just, uh, We loved him when he was on uh, the Drew Carey show. The other thing, you know, we just you started going into a uh, comic strip. Now, you, you do a webcomic, don't you? What's that called, Fistful of Babies? I do, I do.
0: That's right. I, uh, it's called A Fistful of Babies. And you can find it on Instagram, at A Fistful of Babies, or the website is A Fistful of Babies.com. One L.
1: One L fistful. And of it's babies. just a gag
0: a day, gag a day strip with, there's a few recurring characters, but not really. It's really to just get the gags out.
1: Now, do you, uh, not only do you write these stuff, do you draw it as well? I do.
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah. When I was like eight years old, I was like, I'm going to, I need to be a nationally syndicated cartoonist. So I would draw and write comic strips on Bristol paper with the A4 nib and the India ink bottle. And I, <laughs> And I did that, I would put a strip together, one a year, and I'd put like four to six weeks of samples, and then you'd roll them up in the big mailing tube, (laughs) you know, no email or anything like that, and send it off one at a time, the originals to each of the five big syndicates or whatever it was. And I did that every year from when I was eight till I left for college. Wow. Wow. And by the end, after 10 years, I was starting to get personal rejection letters but rejection letters, <laughs> nonetheless. And now, then I they, got to college, and, and things changed. <laughs> did they return any of those? They did. They were. They had to return them. You would. You would include a safe. Uh, yeah. Uh, because that was the way you could send them to the next syndicate. So it took. It took about a year for the for one strip to cycle through the five or six syndicates, and they each got like a thousand, fifteen hundred submissions a year. Um, Wild. probably from the same 1500 <laughs> cartoonists, you
2: know, one of the things you was said earlier was that you stayed too long and you said you felt like the, your jokes were becoming the same note. And one of the things I was thinking about when I, when you said that was uh, as an artist, you know, you start out and I had some influences, very strong influences, a couple. And then as you get a little older, you, You know, I I like to look at different artists and I like to like if I see something they do that's interesting, I like to fold that into what I do. Is there anything comparable in what you do as a comedic writer in terms of looking at influences or exposing yourself to different ideas and ways of, you know, people that are funny that that you you can, you know, mechanically take something from or not really?
0: Mechanically, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting way of putting it.
2: I I feel like my biggest
0: influences were comic strips. So, and of course, when I was young, so Calvin and Hobbes, Garfield, Garfield was huge. Like when Garfield started, and I still think Garfield, is is pretty funny. It's just the problem with those dinosaur comic strips is that again, back to what I was saying with being too long on late, late. You start to tell the same joke again and again, right? So everyone was so sad when Bill Watterson discontinued Calvin and Hobbes. But if you look at those last that last year or two of Calvin and Hobbes, it only ran ten years, and he was repeating himself. And he saw that, and he was like, "I don't want to be Garfield." And he's not making money from merchandise because he refused to do that. So what's the point of still doing the strip? So that that's a really crazy honorable noble thing that he did like for the art you know what i mean and that no one's like that <laughs> i would never do that well
2: gary larson in. did something gary similar, larson
0: yeah and and burke breffitt those the one who did bloom county those yeah. three all felt that way and um and it, it, th- that's unheard of you know
1: and you can speak to each one of them through the mcdonald's drive-through now <laughs> so of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Burke Breathed
0: uh, brought Bloom, Bloom County back on uh, on social media because he was he was missing it so much. I met him very briefly when I worked at DreamWorks because he was going into the elevator as I was coming out to pitch stuff for movies, and it was a huge thrill. Wow, for me. But yeah, I would say influential like Charles Schultz too, like Peanuts. I would say if anything affects my writing, if there's anything I kind of taken that, I'm obsessed now with this mechanical way of thinking about it. It would probably be Schultz because the pacing of Peanuts, the best of Peanuts, um, which to me was the mid fifties, the sixties and early seventies. And then the last five to six years of his life are some of the most brilliant strips he's ever, Snoopy goes back to being more like a dog than a fantasist. It's it's that guy was, you know, that guy was he was literally put on this earth to do that strip because he died. The last strip that made it into the papers was the day that he died. And like that makes total sense because he was like an alien. He was hilarious. (laughs) Just saying I was watching the Peanuts movie over the holidays for the second time. And uh, it's just incredible that you think about the stuff that's in the zeitgeist because of that strip security blanket. Um, the Red Baron. I mean, I know the Red Baron existed, but who who doesn't think of Snoopy when you hear that? You know, Absolutely. Good grief, blockhead. All these things are in the, everybody knows what that is. Everybody knows at least four characters from that strip. Is there any other comic strip that could boast that? We could name four characters. I mean, that's an incredible achievement. And he's affected, I think, all comedy um, in the last 50, 60 years. Uh, whether you want to be affected by him or not. He had a huge influence. Him and Woody Allen, I would say. The, the, well, Woody Allen someone I came to in, uh, later in high school. And uh, I just, I don't think, I think between Woody Allen and Jack Handy, if you guys know him,
2: yeah, Deep yeah. Thoughts with Jack Handy. Sure.
0: Those two have already written all the tweets that will ever <laughs> be funny. There's no reason for Twitter. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> what you saying about what Charles Schultz? Um, Apple has brought back the Snoopy. Uh, they made his mm-hmm. new soupy, Snoopy show, and my my five year old loves it. I mean, so there's I another I, the, there's another generation. I mean, it's yeah. not going away. I mean, that, yeah. that's not no. And it's no. still and, and it's, it's fun. The movie, they did a very nice. I think they did a nice. They job. They did a
0: great it. job. I didn't. I haven't seen much of it, but uh, I laughed out loud when I saw the trailer. And I was like, well, that's a good sign, because I don't laugh at anything anymore. And then uh, I saw an episode and a half, and I was like, oh, they're nailing it, just like the movie did. I thought the movie did an amazing job of capturing the essence of his writing, you know? Like, it's just very funny without having to resort to fart jokes or anything else that I usually do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On uh, Apple TV, we watched uh, a Peanuts New Year's. It was Lucy, and we we're waiting for our grandmother to call her and stuff. And oh, it wow. was really, it was real. I was, you know, I get real scared when they start messing with my, you know, my youth. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised. They did a good yeah. job. So,
0: yeah, I think the kids have a lot to do with it. And his his last wife was very. Is very like in tune with what he would have wanted. Jeannie Jeannie Schultz. Oh, nice. Um, and I know a lot of a lot of respected cartoonists love her and think she's doing right by him. So we're very fortunate.
2: Well, that's and that's critical. I mean, if you don't have yeah. those people in there, the the brand becomes diluted and changed, and uh, it feels very like I said the the current iteration that my five year old loves. Uh, It feels very true to the spirit of the, of of the peanuts that I remember, remember watching on TV and in the strips.
1: Yeah. I had a question about when you write a script, like you, 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 uh, you wrote for Peabody and Sherman, which when I was a kid, I love, I was just, I love that show. And, and this is a question for anybody that writes a script, basically when you have action, in there? Do you imply it? Are you leaving that all up to the director? Do you basically go over this with the director? Is are you done when you're writing when you've written the script, or do you still help with? Well, I kind of visualize this, or uh, how did that, how does that go?
0: It's pretty much dependent on the show. Usually, you want. I mean, the baseline is pretty much always when you're writing the script, make it as clear as possible what you should be looking at, what it, what it should look like. But don't cross over into production value stuff. So you don't get into, um, you know, uh, how many sets you'd have to build if it was a live action or even too detailed with the animation. You know, so it would be just enough to sell the story point or the gag and then back off. And then you, when you go through your editing phase, you cut out anything that doesn't do that. But on Peabody, Peabody was interesting because that's what's known as a storyboard-driven show. So we would write very detailed outlines, then hand it to the storyboard artist, and then they would storyboard it, and a lot of the times add their own jokes to the ones that were in the outline. Sometimes they would veer way off. In fact, most of the disagreements were about whether they were sticking to story or not and getting too getting too jokey to the point where you're confused as to where the story is supposed to be going. Then that would come back to us. And then we were, we would rewrite that. Wow. In many ways that was a little bit more difficult because you had to be super clear in the outline. The outlines were like four to six pages, you know, like single space. So there's, you're, you're writing a script. You're just not doing it in script format because we would have lots of, we'd have lots of dialogue in there. And then we would, you know, one rule of thumb, because I didn't start as the head writer on Peabody, but I later became the head writer. And my big rule of thumb with when the storyboard artists would get it and then come back is if their joke beats the one in the outline, then we'll we'll definitely keep it. Uh, But if it doesn't, then we either go back to the one in the outline or we all try to come up with something better. And that's a a lot of our brainstorm sessions would be about stuff like, like that. But with like Rocky and Bullwinkle, that was to a T scripted. And again, you would just be very clear. Um, I worked on a show for Nickelodeon recently called "The Middlemost Post," which is co-created by a, a longtime SpongeBob Squarepants storyboard artist. But these were full scripts, and it's super crazy and hilarious and um, and they're very they're very particular about like just making it very clear what you're trying to sell us on the page. It's, it's tricky because you don't want to you don't want to overwrite, you know. Because then it, that can muddy it as well.
1: Well, it's a lot more organic than I expected it to be. In that, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, but again, it depends on the. It does right. depend on the show, you know.
2: I think my last question for you is: when you think, obviously, you have uh, you started out wanting to be a cartoonist and writing jokes that way. Do you find yourself more visual oriented when you write, or Have you gotten to the place that you've written for so long that it's just you write the joke and it's not visual-oriented as much as it was when you was trying to submit to the syndicate?
0: Yeah, that's another good question. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is not to toot my own horn, but I was in a meeting about a year and a half ago with somebody who has only been doing this about two years, and we were trying to break a story I forget what the show was, but it was with this outfit that I that I work with, where we do it. I've done a ton of different shows with them, and uh, he said to me, "How long have you been doing this?" After I had said something, you know, and I was like, "I, I don't know, and fifteen, sixteen years," and they were like, "Yeah, you can tell because I never. It would have taken me all afternoon to think of that." And I'm not saying like it was like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't Woody Allen meets Jack Handy, but I got, I got it when he said that, like, Oh, well that is because I've been doing this so long that I could just see, you know, what it really helps with narrative is I, I am better at seeing five steps ahead. So if, if a character is going to do this in act one, then I have an idea of like where that could go, not specifically maybe, but a, a specific general idea of where it could go. And I couldn't do that in the beginning because I just didn't have the experience. And it really is the experience. And I still write about, I I try to write at least five jokes a day, mostly for the comic, but it's just something I got into with Ferguson. And, um, I I wrote every day before that, but I like the idea of like, Oh, try to do five specific jokes because then it just makes it so much easier. Like I remember when on the president show, I would come in with ideas just from the subway ride and it helped me out. Like I remember one of the producers was like, can you come up with something for the blah, blah section of the show? Cause we didn't, we didn't, we forgot to do something. And I was like, I actually have two ideas. And she was like, I love them both. Write them both up. And that was just because I would get in this habit. Because that's what I like to do. I've always liked to do it. And I did it since I was a little kid. I was always trying to come up with good comic strip gags. So I was always trying to think of gags or what am I looking at? But the, when I got more focused about sit down and write five a day, and I don't do it every day, but I come pretty close. It's just it's just a nice way of keeping the, the wheels greased. And, uh, you know, they're not gold. And I try to get them out as... You know, I'll let lots of crap pass for a joke to get the five out. You know what I mean? But I just like the uh, physicalness of it because that's what I like to do. You know, so it's like that's I'm a big believer in when you're you are what you do every day kind of thing. And so that that kind of feeds me towards that. So I don't know if that answered the visual versus the the other way of thinking about it. But I do know that stuff will come to me faster than it used to. And, I, and that has to be from experience. And it's not always great, <laughs> but it is something. In other words, I can, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I can criticize something in somebody's script and have something to replace it with. I just don't know if it'll be better.
2: Absolutely.
1: And that,
0: that's not how I was in the beginning.
2: I, I guess, I follow up on on that point, do you think your comedy leads is more based... On a situation or, you know, because I think about Lucy in the football, you know, which is a right. physical gag as opposed right. to a, you know, situational gag where, you know, uh, the, the the dialogue makes the, the joke. And I've right. just, I have just I don't you know, that's almost like two different muscles, I would think, in my mind creatively, you know, the physical yeah. gags versus, you know, something that's dialogue based.
0: I mean, I, I feel like almost every gag is situational, unless you're in wordplay or pun land. You know, a pun is going to be really dependent on how funny that pun is. But almost everything, even if you take Woody Allen one-liners or Jack Handy, since I brought them up, they're, they're very situational. Like I just, I saw the uh, Don't Look Up over the holidays, the sure. uh, Adam McKay movie. And it starts with a Jack Handy joke. And the joke is, when I die, I hope it's like my father uh, uh, peacefully in my yeah. sleep. And, uh, grandfather peacefully in his sleep and not not screaming like his passengers. <laughs> and that's a situational joke, right? Because in order to get that joke, I mean, to me, I don't know if I'm using the term correctly, but in order to get that, you have to piece together backwards the situation, which is this guy was asleep <laughs> while flying an airplane and that's why those people were screaming. And that, you know, that's killer. And then the only, the only thing I can think of that isn't situ and situational to go back to the physical comedy part of your question, Norbert, that gets amped whether you need it to be more physical or less physical. Right. So it could be, it could be more drawing room comedy, Noel coward situational where it's, bon mots back and forth but there's still a situation there it's still two characters right. trying to one up the other one right or in an oscar wild play right or in many sitcoms many live action sitcoms and then when you get more into kids animation you you tend to get more physical you're still dealing with those situations it's just now instead of bon mots they're literally throwing pots at each <laughs> other and trying to one up one another you still have to make that funny though you know it still has to have some sort of uh, nuance to it that's going to uh, that's going to make it like uh, something you want to watch. But uh, but devoid of situation, I think you're just dealing with puns and and knock knock jokes would fall under that category. You know, uh, and not to say that they're that they're horrible, but there's a reason why they're kind of looked down upon because it doesn't have that extra thing that connects us to it. It's really just about the word.
1: Yeah, that's cool. That makes a lot of sense to me. By the way, that's uh, one of my that Jack Handy line is one of my favorites in the entire world. I just, that's a I've great. L- I've always loved that great line. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's wonderful. He wrote a screenplay uh, many years ago. Uh, I think it was about a caveman, <laughs> or a, uh, but it was hysterical. I have to f- try and find if I still have a copy. But of course, no one made it because it was just it was just like. Can you imagine like an a ninety minutes? of those of just deep thoughts, but <laughs> strung together on a story. It would like everyone's smoke would be coming out of everyone's ears. Yeah, Too
1: much brilliance. Yeah. And I'll have to look that one up. That sounds interesting. It just, just at least to read the screenplay would be fun. Didn't you say you have a podcast? How can oh we, yeah. Thank you. We... Thanks. Uh, yeah. G- can I plug it? Let's by all means.
0: Okay. It's called the human centipod, but it has nothing to do with the movie. and it was uh my girlfriend is a professional stand-up comic her name's carmen lynch she's been on the tonight show and and she's been on all the late night shows and we during lockdown we were locked down the the first lockdown in 2020 in march we were stuck with my family both my brothers their significant others my my mother another mother was there another (laughs) mother-in-law it was madness at one of my brothers and uh she and I were going crazy, and so we went out to my mother's car and we started a podcast. And we called it the Human Centipod because we felt like that movie—silly, sick. We're pretty dark <laughs> and uh, stuck together, and we basically just talk about whatever. So it's like a podcast with no. We we end up talking a lot about comedy though because we're both in it. So it's the Human Centipod. It's on iTunes and and we when we broadcast on Sirius XM. On a channel, uh, channel seven seventy one. She's so funny, which I think is because
1: of Carmen that we're on that. I don't make um, any judgments on that, so that's fine. Yeah, good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and we, and, we, and it's weekly, and we have a lot of
1: fun. Oh, that sounds awesome! It really does. You got that and fistful of babies going on, right? And so, and you can find a fistful of babies on Instagram at a fistful
0: of babies. I'm also on Twitter at Ren Tunes, R-E-Y-N, the first four letters of my last name, Tunes, T-O-O-N-S. And I think I, there's a Facebook page somewhere in there. You can find me, A Fistful of Babies. Google it. <laughs> I put out my first book. It's on Amazon. I self-published it of the first year of the strip. It's called Adorable Murderers All um, right. on uh, Amazon. And the link for that, too, is also on my Instagram page, at A Fistful of Babies.
1: I've been told our engineer told me that uh, you have a pretty kick-ass Facebook site. So, uh, oh, cool! I think Thank people you. need to need to check you out over there too, as well with all the other cool stuff you have going on. It's been great talking tonight, John. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, you know giving us uh, the down and dirty about uh, the everything.
0: <laughs> awesome! Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you,
1: guys. Great meeting you. And thanks great. For Thank having you very me much. On. Great meeting you too. You have a good one. You too. Bye.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative.
1: Hey, hey. you're too late.